in my life as I was making my way, I always asked the question, am I the most powerful person in the room? And the answer needed to be yes. To this day, I still ask that question. And the answer is still yes. In every room in the entire world, the answer is yes. With the exception of one or two. And that drives me. I intend to leave a legacy, the standard of which was set by God. Hello, friend. Hello, friend. You're just in time to join Henry and me for our Mr. Robot podcast. And tonight we're here to discuss episode 10 of season two of Mr. Robot, pretty much called Hidden Process.x. Uh, hidden Process, basically, as, it's, as the name implies, is a hidden task, execution of a program, something like that. And AXX is a file name for an AxCrypt encrypted file. Woo, with that exciting information in mind, Henry, what did you think of this episode? So it was, you know, in some ways a revelation of some of the things that we've been wondering about or uh, plot uh, setups that we've been anticipating. But in some ways, in other ways, uh, extension of mysteries, right? Like still we don't know what happened to Terrell. It seems like they're still kind of milking that for plot suspense and somehow... um, that's going to fit into everything that's been happening. Uh, and then in some other ways, we see the resolution of some things. Like It's become pretty clear that we're going to see Darlene used as uh, you know, a device to drive the plot in the later stages of the season. Oh, wow. No kidding. I thought this episode was really interesting, written and directed, of course, by Sam Esmail. On the one hand, I felt like the pacing was really unusual, And it didn't feel like a lot of other things I've seen in terms of pacing. So like on one level, while it felt like nothing really explosive happened until the end, quote unquote, it still felt like everything had real meaning, even if it was quieter than you might expect from something like that. So we open up in the beginning of the scene with music by Eric Satie, Nacien, with Terry Colby and Price. And that was an interesting interaction. Price was there to get Terry Colby's book. You know, they mentioned uh, was beating Donald Trump's book, a uh, fictitious book, right? So and he, and he's like, can you imagine that guy's actually running? And so kind of a nod to what's going on in our current time. This whole scene was really peppered with a lot of current references. So talking about President Obama and needing to influence him and ambassador to abstain from a certain vote. To your point, making fun of Trump and his book and running for president. And it's super timely. So very weird to see it like that unfold. And I think in some ways it really kind of goes to the intersection between politics and corporations and money. 
and the relationship between all those things. The fact that, you know, he, Philip Price is looking to Terry Colby to exert political pressure to lead to this outcome that they want in Africa that it seems like out White Rose and Philip Price are kind of collaborating on. It, you know, it kind of, it's again taken from the headlines. You look, I don't know if you've been following the 1MDB uh, scandal and story involving the Malaysian prime minister, the US government, some of the biggest banks in the world, but you know, it's very much something that could come out of Mr. Robot also. What's been going on with that? 1MDB was this uh, investment fund set up. Uh, and basically what ended up happening was the prime minister used it as a way to embezzle funds. Like I think so this, I was listening to a story today around $3 billion. Hmm. And, um, and basically these banks that were handling the transactions knew they should have known that something fishy was going on. And when people did raise questions, they would just get fired. So numerous accountants and auditors got fired uh, for raising questions about the kind of strange transactions that were going on. At one point, they had looped in some minor Saudi royal um, to represent that the funds had been given legally to the Malaysian prime minister uh, because of all the great things he's done for Muslims. Um, it's just really kind of crazy. And in the end, it's the U.S. government prosecuting this because they're alleging the banks uh, violated uh, various U.S. banking laws and international laws. And so it's causing this big shakeup of the financial industry, services industry, especially down in Southeast Asia, like Singapore, which takes itself very seriously as a, a financial center, um, is involved in uh, the 1MDB scandal, and they've pledged to tighten up their anti-money laundering efforts and source of fund rules. Um, and I have a pretty funny story about uh, opening a bank account in Singapore that talks about source of funds, if I can get into that. Oh, yeah, please do. I think it's all related to the show and what we're talking about. Yeah, so source of fund rules are basically, you know, these things that they've put into place, uh, pretty much uh, primarily driven by the war on drugs, where it basically requires financial institutions to exercise some degree of oversight or the activities of their account holders and report suspicious activity or certain types of activity to the authorities. And it kind of flies in the face of a lot of the banking secrecy rules and norms that had been the characteristic of the international banking system for such a long time. And, and basically when I was down in Singapore and I had received money from the Singaporean government for my startup, I needed to go open a bank account. So I went into HSBC with my accountant in tow, a uh, Singaporean accountant. And the person at uh, HSBC asked me, where are you getting your funds from? And I said, I'm getting it from the Singaporean government. And she subsequently said, well, I need to know who your customers are. And I said, I don't have any customers. I'm a startup. I'm trying to, I'm trying to like, you know, get customers. And she said, well, I need to know when your customers are. And I said, look, we don't have any customers. We just, we got money from the, and she said, well, you know, I need to know where you're getting money from. I said, I told you from the government. She said, well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, that's not specific enough. And I said, what do you mean? It's not specific enough. I can tell you the government agency. She's like, even if you gave me that, I need to know the names of your customers. I need to know three customers' names. And I said, it's a website. Like there is just, it's a general public website. And this, I swear, Margaret, we had this conversation in circles for an hour, um, wow. going back and forth. And I tried to explain to her, look, it's like, you know, it's like Facebook, how with Facebook, it doesn't have a customer. It just has a lot of users. And she just 
didn't understand. And she kept asking me the same questions and she tried to be kind of sneaky about it. Like she would move off of that topic because it was getting kind of frustrating for both of us. And then she'd return to it as if I would somehow have a different answer about the customers. And finally I had to leave and get uh, the manager and get them to come in here because she just was not able to take, take herself off script. And she was like on the verge of tears. And I was really frustrated as well. Because I'm sure she really didn't have a lot more that she was able to do because I, I know a country like Singapore, like you're saying, they're they're pretty strict with their laws. I know since 9-11 in this country, they have oversight over international wires and incoming money. You know, the, the experience that I had and what 1MDB took advantage of is that on the upper levels, the wheels definitely get greased. Yeah. You know, and so while a low level kind of, a, you know, a bank employee who's opening up an account for Joe Schmo might be very rigorous in going through all the questions. If you are an important person, even in Singapore, you quote unquote know the right people, they can definitely make the process a lot easier for you. That's a, such an excellent point. I mean, we see that over and over again. We see that in everywhere, right? Like if you even look at the bank bailout here and elsewhere, oh, it's infuriating. I wish, I wish small businesses had those kinds of breaks. My Singapore story is about six months ago, I was walking along the Embarcadero in San Francisco and I saw this guy dressed in these casual sportswear, greeting tourists and taking photos of their dogs and saying, hi, I'm from Singapore. And I instantly knew then because of all the security around him that it was the prime minister of Singapore. I was about, oh, I'm not kidding, about two feet away from him at one point. I could have gone over and said hi and I just didn't wanna cramp his style. <laughs> and, and that's a, a, another person who very well understands this intersection of banking, politics, uh, money, and power. Um, and so right off the bat, the show leading with this kind of uh, meeting between Terry Colby and Philip Price, I think kind of sets the tone um, and kind of lets us know as an audience, like, hey, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty meta. You know, there's, there's larger things going on. Well, there, yeah, and there were some really great things about this scene, and I know this is just the opening scene and we're still talking about it, but we'll move on quickly. First of all, you know, we're getting, we're getting a lot of these Philip Price sort of monologues, and we find out that Colby's book is called The Last Honest Man, which is hilarious. <laughs> Even to somebody like Colby, who obviously knows what's going on on some level because he refers to Price's ambitions, he himself cannot believe the extent to which they trade countries like playing cards. That was one of the quotes. And then Price at one point was like, well, politics is for puppets anyway. <laughs> and, you know, those types of sentiments, like on the one hand, you can kind of look at them and say, yeah, that's kind of true or that's the way the world works. But in other ways, it's really dangerous, that type of thinking, because it legitimizes this idea that um, it's all about you know, the end result and that ruthlessness can be tolerated and even encouraged if it yields, quote unquote, the right results. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then after the Eric Satie beautiful piano piece, it moves into a song by Bleach, which I thought was really a great sounding song. And we see a little bit more of how Joanna is fitting into this picture because it picks up sort of right where we left off where she calls Elliot Ollie. She pulls up in, the, in her town car with Sutherland, who's her, her henchman. And 
you know, she's wearing black, I noticed, as opposed to white. She's always worn white previously for the most part. She's really imploring Elliot to find Tyrell. And Elliot's confused as heck. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of there with Elliot in the sense of I'm still wondering why I should care. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Tyrell, sure. Uh, but I, I'm still trying to figure out why I should care about what happened to Tyrell, really. Yes, the actress who plays Joanna, Stephanie Cornelson, if you haven't had a chance to check out her Twitter feed, it's pretty awesome. She's pretty active on Twitter. She's pretty funny, has a really great sense of humor. I think it definitely informs her Joanna character a little bit. And the way she talks, Joanna talks about Tyrell in this episode in terms of why she basically is loyal to him, to your point, is it's how, you know, somebody might describe their cat. You know, my cat really loves me. It's really loyal. Every once in a while when I let it outside, it, it kills a bird or a mouse for me and it brings it in. You know, like, yeah, you're right. It is kind of like someone talking about their cat. <laughs> yeah, it's just funny. And then the actress Stephanie Cornelson on Twitter, she's always posting photos of her cat, which is funny. So she's she plays Joanna even with what she's given with a, a pretty large sense of humor. It's remarkable to me that she really believes he's still alive, Tyrell, that is. Yeah, um, I, my opinion of her kind of lowered when when her character kind of revealed that. I kind of was hoping that she uh, was aware that he was dead and she was playing some deeper game. And one thing I noticed about her when she was getting dressed in that uh, walk-in closet is that her posture, I was hearing about this recently, that women tend to, like recently, have been having postural issues because there's a certain type of posture that's become a little bit in vogue where you kind of arch, you put an extra arch in your back. Um, and so you kind of, you, you, you push your kind of, your, you, emphasize the arch in your lower back so it pronounces your exterior, your rear end, and it kind of, you know, makes your shoulders back a little bit. And for some reason, I just really, I noticed that uh, with her, that she does the same thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, did you see any significance in that she suddenly started wearing black? It could be a color of mourning, right? So it could be a sign that she's in some ways coming to grips with the idea that he might be dead. Um, so maybe that maybe that's it. That's my that's my uh, college one hundred and one answer. And then we had a bunch of scenes with Cisco and Darlene, starting with them discovering that the person who is who is in the house where the tape is left, the VHS tape of Darlene in her F Society gear, is Vincent, someone that Darlene knows from the D.C. Washington D.C. the Capitol Hill gang. The, the tea baggers, which is hysterical. And to me, I was immediately like, this is a setup. Well, it's, it's a way in which to set the stage for the th- events that come later, right? Kind of the tightening of the new star on F society, getting the FBI ever closer to them. It's all part of the setup. Just the way that Darlene lets Sitsko talk to her. I found that very out of character for Darlene and, I mean, honestly, if somebody like Cisco said that to me, not only would I not date him, <laughs> I would not be hanging out with this dude. Like, you're, you're not a leader. I think she's done a fairly good job, all things considered. Like, what, where is that coming from? Like, why is he trying to tear her down and be such a hater? Yeah, I don't know. I, I felt like this was 
you know how sometimes in the trilogy, the second book is just kind of a setup piece for the 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 bookends of the story. Yeah. And and at a certain point, you really feel like the characters are just kind of being moved as, around like chess pieces to set up the final you know final arc or the narrative arc. And I kind of feel like that's a little bit what this episode is about. It's just kind of setting these pieces up for you know, the end of season two and the cliffhanger into season three. I agree, because I think it was really out of character for Darlene to let somebody, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, he just wouldn't stop. He kept just trying to tear her down. Now, granted, she is a murderer, and I really thought she was just going to kill Vincent. She went against her better judgment, I think, and went with Cisco. So maybe that was all part of what he was supposed to do to begin with. It's just... It's crazy, but then Dom, her whole role this this episode is basically to be like a sniffing bloodhound. Yeah, she's kind of like you know the the uh, Al Pacino character, you know, at the Heat, you know, with Robert De Niro and his gang, and how like Pacino just kind of like kept doggedly like uncovering pieces of De Niro's life and getting ever closer and closer to him. I feel like Dom's character is kind of forming, uh, playing this role albeit, I think, less well than Pacino. Yeah, she's got this little Sherlock Holmes bloodhound character. Like, you know, and just like rubbing people the wrong way with her coarse and gruff manner. I mean, yeah, I think the thing I don't like is when writers uh, use, like, have characters acting out of character because they spend so much time building up the character, but then they go out of character to set up important scenes. That bothers me. And what I, what, I, what I don't understand from a character consistency point of view is why these people who are very smart, these characters like Darlene, Elliot, and these other hackers who are very smart and understand a lot about how things work, make these seemingly fundamental mistakes or errors that just show total lack of awareness. Like the fact that they just allow them, they just walk around allowing themselves to be easily seen and identified or like they sit right next to a window in a cafe very close to the hospital that they just took their buddy. It's like, really? You know, like, come on. Like, it's, I find that a little bit out of character, right? I, I, can, I very much hear you. It is very much out of character, especially given how paranoid they've all been the past couple episodes. Uh, you know, we do find out that Mr. Robot and Elliot are hot on the trail of Tyrell trying to hack and figure out where he is. And that was a fun sequence, seeing all the ways in which Elliot gathered together all of the hardware and knew the necessary technical hacks. And, but something that you like to point out a lot were all the social hacks that he knew too, in terms of how different systems work and people work. So he knew how to call in for the spoof facts and get that information. He knew how to like, just handle all of that and I thought that was pretty cool to watch, especially when he tuned out that guy Sutherland. Yeah, I, I, I wonder to what extent the show creators and writers are aware of the MacGyver risk that they run. You know that show <laughs> MacGyver where like the basic, like the, the kind of climax of each show was MacGyver taking different pieces and putting them together in these interesting ways to solve the, the cliffhanger, right? And it's kind of like I wonder to what extent – Mr. Robot runs the risk of that with its kind of scenes of hacking. If it's like, you know, you have to have one in every show. You kind of have to have some some kind of 
action scene involving hacking in every show. Yeah. Um, Oh, I definitely think they put that in there every single show to appease that that part of the fan base for sure. And what do you think about Dominique's boss? I think his name is Agent Santiago. I'm not sure. Do you think he's a dark army plant? Could be. I mean, I think we've seen that they have uh, people in very high levels of government, so I would not be surprised. I just noticed, like, he's always blocking her every every move she makes he's blocking her or telling her not to worry saying you know trying to postpone her success and it just seems to me like he doesn't want her to really succeed and i wonder if you're right how the writers are going to deal with that because if i find it hard to believe that a character like dom would not notice that her boss who's obstructing her efforts is connected to the organization she's investigating, you know? Like, wouldn't that set off some sort of, uh, uh, some sort of secret sense or sixth sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I hear you. I did love the scenes of Mr. Robot and Elliot shopping at, at I guess, Costco or something like that, or Walmart. <laughs> yeah, in a time where, and, you know, they were talking about Evil Corp trying to push its, uh, it's proprietary currency, right? It's e-coin technology. And so, you know, uh, how they were kind of shameless about it and offering discounts on things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and in many ways, like we are giving up a large measure of our privacy for kind of small discounts, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, for, for the sake of getting a few percentage points back, we'll use these affiliate shopping programs or these, mm-hmm. uh, credit cards and have our transaction monitored because it saves us a few percentage points. Uh, we'll give that up. Yeah, we definitely give a lot in, in that case. I know you're in San Francisco. There's the Safeway card. There's the uh, Walgreens card. I mean, it goes on and on and uh, the Target card or whatever it is. And then it is a pretty good record of sort of what you do. And, and it's a potential privacy violation in some cases if that if things like that ever gets out because i know that toothpaste i buy Ooh, it's really controversial (laughs) (laughs) the cryptocurrency is seeping in and i definitely think that's probably where we're heading is towards more cryptocurrencies yeah um and i and one of the reasons why i think cryptocurrencies won't ever drop in value too much is because of all the gray market uh, holders of the coin, right? If you think about all the people, like uh, we saw it in Mr. Robot, these uh, prison uh, gangs who invest in Bitcoin. I'm sure a lot of drug dealers and arms merchants and other people in the gray economy have used Bitcoin and invested in it. And so the idea of all of a sudden, it stopped having liquidity or stopped being in use, I think is pretty far-fetched at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this whole ER scene, if I were Darlene, what I would do is I would get the, I would get this guy, Vincent, there somehow. I would try to call somebody to do it, but if that's not possible, bring him myself, leaving him in front of the building or the entrance, make an encrypted call to them and say, hey, look outside and leave. To your point, it really doesn't make sense that she and Cisco were hanging out like that. I didn't seem to know that... Darlene was so attached to Vincent. 
Yeah, it was just kind of one of these out-of-character setups, right? Where it's like Darlene, in some scenes or some uh, episodes, would seem like she would leave Elliot behind if he got in her way, you know? Like, she would seem like she's willing to leave anyone behind in the sake of her mission. And then it's like, all of a sudden, this episode, she gets all soft and sentimental. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't see that. And low self-esteem, and she's, like, hanging out with this guy whom she allows to basically drag her down spiritually because he's trying to make her feel like she's paranoid. And she should know better knowing who he works for. It's all so, I don't know. I mean, she'd have to be really messed up. There were some nice touches. There was that Let's Be Frank TV conspiracy show that was pretty funny talking about what was going on that was playing in the background. What do you think Mr. Robot is afraid of in terms of why did he disappear? To some extent, I wonder if it's just the show creators and writers creating another mystery. You know, like, I don't know if he needed to disappear, but the fact that he's disappeared gives him something else to create narrative tension. Mm -hmm. Because he was clearly trying to tell Elliot not to look after trying to find Tyrell. And then as soon as Tyrell called, Mr. Robot just left the scene completely. And before that, it was kind of the warm fuzzies at Costco. So it will be interesting to see if that fits in at all with anything. And then, of course, we basically find out that Elliot is successful finding the address where Tyrell is. And do you recognize that address? I think I do. Mm-mm, I do not. What is that address? I think that's Terry Colby's address. Oh, interesting. Hmm. 92nd East 82nd Street, Upper East Side, on the okay. other side of Central Park from where I used to live. Maybe that's why I remember it. But I think that I remember Angela looking that address up when she went to see him. But who knows? Maybe it's Scott Knowles. I used to live right around there, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. What, what, what was the address again? 92nd East 82nd Street. Yeah, I lived, I think I lived on either 82nd or 84th. So... I lived like, I, I probably walked by the fictitious address that they had there. And the, the interesting thing about that neighborhood, so I was going to law school in New York for a semester at the time, and I was taking this uh, regulation of sexuality class uh, seminar. And I did this paper on uh, underground prostitution in New York City and uh, the, the in, like how they were using the internet. And so long story short, I found out that there was a brothel in my neighborhood on the Upper East Side <laughs> that was advertising on Craigslist. And so just to kind of see what would happen, I, re- I sent an email to the, uh, the congressman, the office of the congressman who represented my, that neighborhood. And I said, like, I explained, like, I'm a student at NYU. I was doing this research and I realized I found this brothel and it concerns me because there's a lot of children in the neighborhood. Like, it's a family neighborhood, right? There's a lot of school kids running around. And so they emailed me back and they said, how do you know? And I sent them the Craigslist link. I was like, this is how I know. Um, And they never got back to me and never heard anything. And then about a year later, like maybe eight months later, I saw in the paper that there was a brothel busted in the Upper East Side. Um, and so the, I was like, cool, like if they eventually did something about it. Maybe not because of me, but um, it was just kind of interesting to see uh, that all kind of progress from something kind of hidden underground 
yet in plain sight to being busted. Yeah, well, maybe Terry Colby was a customer at that brothel. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe it's just Tyrell's phone. Maybe it's not Tyrell at all who's making those calls. Yeah, because the way that he, he she got the phone was that she received a package, right? And there was something in the package with the phone taped underneath, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And, and, and so... You know, they don't really hint too much around where that package was sent from. But I think that's the other part of the loop, right? Is either someone sent it to her or someone sent it to her husband. And that person who sent it is basically calling. So it's either intentional or being automated and being done unintentionally. I have a feeling that when Elliot comes into contact with Terrell's body, because I have a feeling that it's going to happen at some point that that's going to be used as a setup for the scene between Mr. Robot and Elliot all around the, the remains of Terrell's body. That could very well be. And I guess next week's episode is, is going to be extra long. Is it going to combine episodes 11 and 12 together? I think I heard that maybe. Oh, that'll be interesting if it does. I mean, Mm -hmm it would kind of make sense that then that this would be the setup for it because yeah, they're basically setting us up for a, a action packed finale. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot did happen. I mean, Angela and Elliot make out and have this intense conversation on the subway beforehand. So there's that Angela's going to turn herself in or at least she was going to, and she's confronted by probably the dark army. Yeah, I mean, that whole uh, Angela Elliott scene, it was not uh, Ross and Rachel's kiss by any means. It was just kind of weird. But yeah, interesting to see how that plays out. And I kept thinking about Napoleon Dynamite during Angela's spiel. It's true. And I have to tell you, I think the actress does a great job, Portia Doubleday. I did find the kiss pretty awkward, but I just can't help staring at her fake eyelashes. I know that's so superficial of me, but they're glued on in a way that they really sit just far enough above her lid where they look like fake eyelashes. So I can't help but stare at them because... I don't know. The fake eyelashes, to put them on really in a refined way, um, like little tiny hair by hair, takes hours to do. So economizing of time, I guess, is at the forefront of those eyelash decisions. Or do you think that they're doing it intentionally to kind of say, like, she's a little bit sloppy? Or that she's trying to make herself more glamorous. This is sort of a mask she's wearing, you know, in in her own way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. That's a good point. And I, and I know it's so silly for me to pick on, but it's just, I do stare at it because they almost are like her defense mechanism. Like they're just kind of out there and you kind of get, can't get past them. <laughs> it's like how some people put on like a beauty mark uh-huh. uh, or like an accent, like a little sparkle. Have you, have you run across someone who has this? What I was thinking of, I was listening to the you must remember this podcast and a couple episodes ago when they're doing this thing about the early days of Joan Crawford, one of her ex-husband's um, first girlfriends used to wear temporary tattoos on her face. And this is in the forties. Whatever works, right? No, not whatever works. That's how we ended up with Trump running for office. Not whatever works. No, no. We have to draw the line somewhere, Margaret. <laughs> 
Oh, well, I'm not going to be the, uh, you know, defender of facial tattoos and rhinestones. <laughs> so it will be interesting to see if Angela actually goes through with what uh, she told Elliot she was actually going to do, or if on her way to her confession, something happens. Because it seems like the Dark Army is taking great pains to cover its tracks. Yes, and I think that White Rose is going to abscond Angela for some reason because that will thwart Philip Price somehow, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't think it would surprise me to see her character kind of go the confession route and end up in prison. I mean, that would be a bit of a torturous narrative development. I'd much rather see her get abducted by someone. Uh, I think that'd be a lot more interesting. Yeah, not even having a friend like Leon would make that a more um, favorable story. And then, of course, we get to this crazy ending where Dom the Bloodhound, ever so on the trail, does locate Cisco and Darlene, who are sitting, like you're saying, under a neon sign. It looks like a modern-day Edward Hopper painting. She's there with that dum-dum Cisco, and then... I mean, as soon as I saw that motorcycle pull around, I knew it was assassination time. Yeah, I did. Everyone did. Why didn't those two people sitting right by the window realize it? I don't know. Uh, So do you think they're alive or dead? I think they're alive. I mean, I would find it hard to believe that they would leave. They would leave the death of two pretty significant characters, especially Darlene, to a long distance shot. You know, they, they have to, that, if that happened, there'd be close-ups, I would imagine. Maybe Cisco's dead and Darlene's alive. I looked at the, the window uh, um, and I was playing the scene again to kind of see if the characters ducked when the, when the person opened fire. And I feel like I could clearly see one person duck, but another person did not. Um, and the person that I'm not sure of ducking was the person on the left, but given prior shots, the person on the left would have been Darlene. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I want to say that somehow they both managed to duck because the agent was right there with them, um, standing in front of their booth. Right. And she was somehow able to duck and return fire. And so if she was, she was able to survive that initial burst it makes me think that there was pretty good chance of both of them surviving that initial burst also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, in some ways I think you're mostly right about that for sure. In most ways I think you're right about that. The only thing that would lend credence to Darlene not making it through this this episode alive is they have been setting her up as kind of a stone cold killer. I mean, especially if she didn't, take Vince into the emergency room. So they kind of resurrected her a little bit. So she's not totally a stone-cold killer. Um, yeah, I mean, she's probably still alive. Maybe Cisco's a goner. I sort of hope he is. He's, he's kind of a downer. Well, he's clearly earned your death sentence. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think if Darlene was killed this way, it'd be like the worst death of a major character since Omar and The Wire. You know, like, really? Like, that's how they go out? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's how she goes out. Oh, well, I am really looking forward to seeing how this season unfolds. I can't believe we're coming up to the end so soon. And yet so many ominous things set in motion. And the the series was renewed for another season. Um, So maybe that'll motivate them to actually have the narrative progress. 
Yeah. There was this one scene, and I, I don't mean to go back after we're sort of wrapping up, but I know you saw this one scene where, where Elliot was saying, there's something that Mr. Robot wants me to find in my apartment. Can you find it for me? And I felt like that was a recreation of a VR experience or a video huh. game. When Elliot went back to his place when he was with Sutherland and he's like, is Mr. Robot MIA because he's afraid? Why did that phone call freak him out? And then later on, he's like, can you help? Can you look? Can you see anything? There's something here he wanted me to find. And I bet hidden in that scene in Elliot's apartment is something. If you screenshot at each scene, I'm sure there's something there that is a clue. Ooh, gauntlet thrown. All right, let's see if we can get to the bottom of <laughs> Anyway, well, Henry, thanks so much for talking about this episode of Mr. Robot with me. And I want to thank all the listeners. Please feel free to rate, listen, review on iTunes and comment on our Mr. Robot podcast fan page on Facebook. Can't wait to chat next week with you about Mr. Robot, Henry. Me too, Margaret. Talk to you then. Take care. Bye. Bye. Is this the future I was fighting for? The system is hung. Frozen in limbo. Did we lose the fight? Maybe wars aren't meant to be won. Maybe they're meant to be continuous. Maybe Ray had it right all along. 